Now, Lord, as we come around your word together, I pray that our hearts will be open and, Lord, your spirit will speak to us, encourage us, bless us, challenge us, whatever you want to do. Lord, we commit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So pray for those two guys and um, don't let it be something we just do now and forget about it. Let it be an ongoing thing. My mother taught me all sorts of things. The most important things in life. Mum taught me the value of prayer. She said, you'd better pray that carpet stain will come out. My mother taught me reasoning. She said, because I said so, that's why. Good reasoning. My mother taught me logic. If you fall off that swing and kill yourself, you won't be getting any ice cream. <laughs> My mother taught me about finding purpose. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry for. My mother taught me about the science of osmosis. Shut your mouth and eat your supper. My mother taught me about contortionism. Will you look at the dirt on the back of your neck? She taught me about stamina. You're going to sit there until that broccoli is finished. She taught me about animals. This room of yours looks like a herd of wild buffalo have been through it. She taught me about envy. There are millions of starving children around the world who would love to eat what's on your plate. I, I used to often actually offer her, you know, why don't you send it to them? <laughs> My mother taught me about anticipation. Just wait until your father gets home. She taught me about medical science and meteorology. So don't cross your eyes because if the wind changes, they'll stay like that. <laughs> Didn't you ever get that one? She taught me about my, my heritage and birth. She said, close the door, you weren't born in a tent. She taught me about wisdom. She said, when you get to my age, you'll understand. And my favourite thing of all, she taught me about justice. And she says, one day... You're going to have kids, and I hope they're just like you. <laughs> but she also taught me about manners. And I want to talk about a couple of manners. We'll pick it up firstly in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus climbed into a boat, and his disciples followed him. And as they crossed the sea, a storm suddenly hit, and soon the waves were breaking over the boat. But Jesus remained asleep in the boat. And his disciples eventually woke him and said, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And Jesus said, why are you afraid? You have such little faith. And then he stood up and rebuked the winds and the waves and immediately the storm ceased and the water became calm. And the men were amazed at what happened to him and said, what manner of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. Now, I want to grab just a phrase out of three passages, and this is the first one, and ask the question about manners. What manner of man is this? Now, the word that we translate here, uh, what manner of man, this, this Greek word means what 
what possible sort, what type, what, what kind of, of man is this? It's, it's used just five times in the New Testament. We're going to look briefly at three of them this morning. Jesus had just healed the centurion's servant and, and then Peter's mother-in-law and had cast demons out of quite a few other people. And he'd got into a boat with his disciples and he was utterly exhausted from ministry. Now, believe it or not, ministry can take a lot out of you. Well, it's good to pray for your pastors. But Jesus was was tired. He was worn out and so he was asleep in the boat. And then came the storm. And then came eventually Jesus' words to the storm. And that prompted this question by the disciples. The question was asked in utter amazement. How could could anyone possibly perform such a an incredible, stupendous miracle. How can a man stand up and speak to such overwhelming forces as the wind of a storm or the waves on the ocean, waves on a turbulent sea? How can you speak to them and let them be calm? This was quite an incredible miracle. You know, we underestimate the power that God has placed in nature. We talk about man-made climate change. Did you know that, that recently there was a volcanic eruption, just one volcanic eruption that produced more carbon dioxide than man has in all of his history on Earth? In one eruption. The power that there is in nature we cannot begin to imagine. King Canute did not succeed in stopping the tide coming in. But Jesus stilled the storm by his word. This is incredible. This is amazing. What sort of person can do this? What manner of man is this? Ever since Jesus walked on the earth, people have been asking this question. More books have been written about him. More questions have been asked about him. More controversies have raged about him than any other person who's ever lived. We find many that have portrayed him as a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Caucasian weakling. That's how he's often portrayed. He certainly wasn't that. On the other extreme, some have described him as simply God camouflaged as a man. He wasn't really a human being. He wasn't that either. They've got it wrong on both. So what kind of man was he? Volumes have been written about him since he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. But in just a couple of moments that we have this morning, we we can't get more than just a very, very simple little glimpse of the manner of man that he is. But the Bible clearly teaches us this, that Jesus had this dual nature, that he was both God and man. From his very conception, 
from birth, he had a divine and a human nature. His divine nature had been present through all of eternity, but, but it united with Mary's nature in that sense, in that human nature in the womb. And the Son of God was both man and God. In the Westminster Catechism, we read this. This is one of the statements from the Catechism. I believe that Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. This dual nature is something that we have difficulty in really grasping. It's such a, a huge concept and doctrine that that we really can't get hold of it. The incarnation, how God could become man. That's, that's a mind-boggling thought. But it's important to notice that Jesus was, in every aspect, a human being. He had our nature except for one difference. His nature was not tainted with sin, as is ours. Jesus was the eternal God who became a human being. There's a doctrine that, that theologians have argued about for a long, long time. It's called the kenosis, the, the sense of, of God emptying, or Jesus emptying himself. And in a sense, I, I, would, I would suggest to you that, that this emptying of himself, of his deity, is not quite right. What we, we really find is that rather than ceasing to be God, empty himself of divinity, he actually added to himself humanity. He added to himself humanity. And then he chose, he chose to, to limit himself to human existence, to human experience, to be like us. The Bible tells us that like any human being, he was born, that he slept, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he suffered and he died. All of these are attributes of normal humanity. And yet when Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus did not rebuke Peter because Peter was right. He was God. Jesus was God. And matter of fact, Jesus said, you know, Peter, you're really blessed because you didn't work that out for yourself. You see, the Father has actually shown that to you. He has shown you who I am so Jesus knew that he was God, but he chose to live as a human being. And the ultimate humiliation of his choice, the ultimate humiliation of his incarnation was that he allowed man whom he had created to take him and nail him to a cross. And yet, he never stopped being God. That's, 
an incredibly mind-boggling thought. We say it quite glibly, fully man, fully God. But when you really think about it, this is such an enormous thing. But Jesus chose to live as a man so he could be our example. And so we read in Acts chapter 10, it says in Acts 10, 38, God anointed, now the word anoint, let's understand, we, we use religious terms, the anointing. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, he has the anointing. Do you know what it means? Do you know why the king was anointed? Anyone want to have a hazard a guess? What is the anointing? It's really simple. It is simply signifying approval. Approval. So God approved of Jesus of Nazareth. And because God approved of him and the Holy Spirit was on him, he went about, the Bible says, doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So whatever we see of Christ on earth, we see that a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit can do the things that he did because he chose to live as a man approved of God. Do you know you are approved of God? You are approved of God. I, honest, I've got to say this honestly. I, I don't ask that God will anoint me because I know I'm already approved of God. I have that anointing. And so do you. This is not something special. This is something that you and I and Jesus all have in common. We have the approval of God. So you know what? I don't care what anyone else thinks about me. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's nice to be loved and accepted and all of that sort of stuff, but the bottom line is God approves. God approves. And I know that because of God's approval, because of the Holy Spirit's power within the things that Jesus did, we also can do. That's why he said that to his disciples. He didn't say, the things that I do, I did because I am God. No, he said, the things that I do, you can do also. Because we share that anointing, that approval of God. Now that's a really important thing. And I want us to bear that in mind as we just go on in this. Because I want to look at something else we've got to mind our manners with. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, it says this, Consider what manner of love the Father has poured out on us that we are called the sons of God. That we are called the sons of God. Now, I, I want to emphasize something here, and I am and quite intentionally being pedantic about a word, but I'll explain why. Often today, preachers, and, and even you'll find a lot of Bible translations, discount who we are by changing the word sons to either children 
or sons and daughters. You see, we've got to remember that when we read the Bible with our Western eyes, we are reading something that was written by ancient Eastern writers. And sons here is not a gender statement. This is not a statement of gender. It's actually a a statement of status. That's what this is about. It's no more sexist to describe women as being sons of God than it is when we tell men that they're the bride of Christ. And I want to encourage you, do not water down this statement. We are sons of God. And it is important that we understand that. And this is not a sexist statement. This is a statement that relates to our standing, our status in the kingdom. It's a very important statement. Our status, our standing is that we are a son of the king. We are not just merely a child of the king's house. And there is a huge difference in the time when, when kings ruled in the way that they used to rule and others of standing in, in, in that society, particularly in the, the ancient times, they had more than one wife. I remember somebody put a uh, Sunday school uh, kid expressed something about Solomon and said that he had a um, he had a hundred wives and eight hundred porcupines. Somebody else said, "If he's a man of such wisdom, how did he manage to have so many mothers-in-law?" Well, I'm not sure about that one either. But certainly, there used to be that that men would have many wives, and they would then have many children as well. But all of their children were counted like their wives as simply goods and chattels. That's what they were. They were their possessions, their goods and chattels. You remember when Lot had a visitor. He had a couple of visitors and he recognized who they were and brought them into his house. And people came and knocked on his door and said, send out your visitors to us. And he said, no, I can't do that. There was a reason he couldn't. It was because of covenant that he had entered into. Once they'd stepped over the threshold of Lot's door, they came into covenant with him. And what he had to do as an honourable man would be to give up all of his goods and chattels before he would allow somebody to take one who had come into covenant with him. And so Lot said, you can take everything I've got, even my daughter's. What a terrible thing for a man to say. No, it wasn't. That was the way it operated back then. The kids, the wife, were goods and chattels. But at the age of 12, a son, or a male child, I should say at this point, would be presented to the father, and the father could then show his love or favour to him by adopting him as a son or else he could simply recognise him as one of the children of the household. And whilst the children of the household had certain standing and privileges, a son had much, much 
more. And one of the ancient methods of adoption was that the father would take the hand of the son and place that hand with his into the treasury, into the box of gold. And the implication is what is mine is now yours. And he'd place a ring on the finger of the son to give him the authority of the household, the authority of the father. And the son would have an inheritance that none of the other children of the house would have. So when we are born again, we are born again into the king's house. We're part of the household. So we're children of the household. But the Bible tells us more than that. In, in Ephesians 1.5, it tells us that we are adopted. We are adopted. And people say, well, adoption is the same as becoming his child. No, it's not. We were born into the family, born into the household, but then taken by the father and adopted. So we are the adopted sons of God. Understand this. We are more than just members of the household. We are the sons of God. And that is a distinction that should never, ever be nullified. We are loved and accepted by the Father. So we don't have to separate ourselves in terms of gender or, or social standing or race. No, all of that is done away with in Christ. We are born into the family and then adopted as sons. There are no slaves, no Jews or Gentiles or ethnic divide, nor male nor female in this kingdom. We stand as equal, but as sons. Please never, ever forget the, stain, the standing, the status that you have. Don't sacrifice your stata at, status at the altar of political correctness that we have these days. Guard your worldview. See yourself the way that God sees you rather than looking at a humanistic worldview, all right? Don't sacrifice at that altar, whatever you do. So John calls us here and he says, consider the incredible love, the favour, the privilege that God has poured out on us. We considered a moment ago what sort of man Jesus was. But now here's something to think about. 1 John 4, verse 7 says this, As he is, so are we when we get to heaven. No, it doesn't say that. As he is, so are we in this world. In now, I, I want you to notice, please, what it doesn't say as much as what it does say. It does not say... As he was, so are we in this world because we know he was despised and rejected of men. And so we can say, well, that's what we are. No, it says, as he is. As he is. Have you ever considered your spiritual standing in God? We do not wait for the world to come we are now the sons of God. 
And this is our standing, and we are like him. This is one of the great mysteries of the kingdom. The kingdom is, is now, but it's not yet. It's now in that, in that the kingdom is here with us, and, and we are living in the kingdom now, but there's a future aspect of the kingdom as well. There's both. But the now part of the kingdom goes like this. We are now the sons of God. Isn't that incredible? This is amazing love, amazing favor that is poured out on us, but it is real. We are as he is. Tell me something. Is, not was, is Jesus loved by the Father? Yes? I've got no doubts. No one thinks that God the Father doesn't like the Son, doesn't love the Son. No, of course he does. As he is, so are we. You are loved of God. How many of you remember, if you've got kids, when number two arrived? And number one had a difficulty because number one was the loved child of the family. Now, number two has turned up. And so now, number one won't get as much love. And I wonder how many parents, well, I'm pretty sure just about every parent would have said this at some point to their kids, I don't love you any less. I love you the same as I did before. And I love number two the same as I did before. And number three and number... Somehow the love that we have expands to incorporate, doesn't it? Okay? As he is, so are we. And God's love does not diminish by the number of people who are his. As Jesus is, you are in this world. Does Jesus have any authority? As he is, so are we in this world. As he is. So often I've, I've seen Christians bowed down with, with care or guilt My training as a counsellor was as a trauma counsellor. So it's a little bit different to normal counselling. And I'm glad it is because I have a, a bit of a problem with normal, with, with normal counselling with, with people with guilt complexes. Because what I want to say is, just stop it. You're feeling guilty? Stop it. Just stop it. As he is. So are we in this world. We don't have to walk around with the load of guilt. He took it from us. We have been set free. We are now as he is in this world. We have people so often who, who carry around a, a victim mentality. A victim over something that has happened in the past. And, and I, I want you to hear and understand what I'm saying here. 
I'm not suggesting that what happened in the past wasn't a horrible thing, whatever it might have been. And, and there's a lot at the moment that where people talk about the sexual abuse that they received as children. And indeed, that is a horrible, horrible thing. There is no question of that. It is bad, it is evil, and, and you can use any other description you like, and I will agree that it's horrible. And I'm really sad that that happened to you way back then. But I want to tell you something. I'm sorry you had to experience that, but you are no longer a victim. You're no longer a victim. Is Jesus, who was crucified who was despised and rejected, who came to his own and they did not receive him, is he a victim now as he is? As he is? No, of course he's not. He's the victor. He's the conqueror. And as he is, so are we in this world. What manner of man is this? Well, whatever he is, we are. We are. As he is. And that's good news for us. You are blessed. You are loved. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to get blessed. You're blessed now. So much so that the Bible says he daily, and I love the, you know, I like a lot of different translations. There's no one particular Bible translation that I think is the one. All right, But I do love the way that King James puts this. It says, he daily loads me with blessing. <laughs> oh, that's good. He daily, he doesn't just give me a blessing and say, cop this one for today. No, no, he loads me with blessing. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. Do you get it? Can you grab hold of this? This is such an important concept. People may not like the way they look or the way they feel rejected by others. Well, that's okay. God loves you just the way you are. If others don't, tough. They're the ones that are the losers. Because I want to tell you, if you have relationship and fellowship communion with me, you're having communion and fellowship and relationship with somebody who is like God, the same as you are. As he is, so are we in this world. And so if you refuse to have that fellowship and relationship, you're the loser. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. Because as he is, so am I, and so are you. Don't ever look in a mirror. You know, I, I joke about it sometimes and, and say, well, when there's only one of me, because when God looked at me and he'd made me, he said, oh, I won't do that again. <laughs> but I don't really care what anyone else thinks, <laughs> because I know who I am. I know who I am. I don't fully know who I will be, and none of us know. But what I do know is who I am. And who he is, so am I. As he is, so am I. He is not rejected, neither am I. He has shown his love and acceptance and forgiveness and he's given us the status 
of sonship. We are a kingdom son. That's a present reality, my friend. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a bit excited about that. When the disciples asked Jesus for some instruction on prayer, they said, hey, John taught his disciples about prayer. How about you do that for us? And, and Jesus gave them this, this sample prayer that we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer, but we won't go there at the moment. And, and this was all in the context of the kingdom. And he said this, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. So everything that we're talking about here is in relation, when Jesus gave this sample prayer, it was in relation to the kingdom being outworked on the earth through you and I. All right? The kingdom is here now. You are. He is the king. He rules in you. You're on the earth. So guess what? The king reigns on the earth right now. And Jesus went on and he said this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. And so we can have an expectation of heaven living in and through us right at this very moment. Here was Jesus' worldview. Heaven is here. On earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the enorm Can you grab hold of the enormity of that statement? That that kingdom of God is operating in us now. The Father's will is being outworked in us and through us here and now. And I want to ask you a question. Is that your worldview? Because it needs to be. It need we, we are fed such rubbish so often these days about a worldview, let me tell you, that's the best worldview you can have on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus explained all of that and then he said something really strange. He said, give us today our daily bread. Now, we've always, because we learned that in English, we've always presumed that that meant that the that Jesus was saying to the disciples, well, see what you need for today and ask God to provide the present need. Well, actually, that's not what it says. That's what it sounds like, but it's not what it says. Because Jesus is, you know, Jesus was a really smart man. And, and what he did here, he did something really smart. He made up a word that does not appear anywhere else in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. It appears once only in all literature, and that's here where Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. This word daily. And, and when you actually look at that word, because it's not used anywhere else, you've got to look at the word and try and break it down. You'll find in the margin of some Bibles... It will say, literally, this means tomorrow's bread. Tomorrow's bread. Give us today tomorrow's bread. Huh? How does that make any sense? Well, it makes a lot of sense, really, to the Jews particularly. 
because they understood that when the wilderness experience was happening, every day they would get their daily bread. And they would go out and collect their manna for the day and take it home. But if any of them decided, I'm going to sleep in tomorrow, so I'll take some for tomorrow as well, guess what happened? It went bad. They couldn't have tomorrow's bread because it was only today. All right? And what Jesus was actually saying here to the disciples was, hey, when you ask, say, God, let me have tomorrow's bread. Let me have tomorrow's bread today. When we think about tomorrow in terms of the kingdom, we're, we're thinking of God's universal kingdom reigning for eternity with all of the blessings of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we come and we say, God, hi. You know me well. I'm not just one of the, the kids of the household. I'm your son. So give me today tomorrow's bread. Give me the bread of the kingdom today. The future kingdom we experience now while we're waiting as I've said many times, it's not just a case of saying, well, Lord, we'll, we'll just have enough for today to get through. No, 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 no. No, it's not like that at all. We, we, get, we get great provision. We get tomorrow's bread and we get it today. So is there any lack in the kingdom tomorrow? No, of course there's not. There's no lack. So if we're lacking, what do we do? We say, give me tomorrow's bread today. Is there sickness in the kingdom? No. So we come and we say, Father, can I have tomorrow's bread, wholeness, today? Is there poverty? And on we can go. You understand the principle that we're, we're talking about here. It's not just waiting for the future. We're saying, God, we live in the kingdom. Let me have tomorrow's bread today. Do not underestimate the power of God to change your circumstance. And don't underestimate the power of God to take a sinner and make them a son of the kingdom. As he is, so are we in this world. As he is. On earth, as it is in heaven. All right, quickly. 2 Peter 3.11, given that all these things will be destroyed, Peter's talking about the end of time. He's saying, because we know all of this is going to happen, what manner of person ought we to be? We should have a lifestyle that's holy and godly. Here's a good question for us to consider. What manner of man is this? He's our example. He's our sample, if you like. 
What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we are the sons of God. We are given that status. So how do we live it out? What sort of person or what sort of life should we be living? And Peter immediately answered the question. He said, you see, we've already escaped the corruption of the world. He established that earlier. He established the fact that we are adding to our faith things like like goodness and knowledge and self all of that he added so he says we should be living the sort of life that reflects who we are as sons of God as kingdom people as ones who can say give me tomorrow's bread today I don't just want pie in the sky when I die by and by I want steak on the plate while I wait all right, this is a now time thing. So Peter says, we ought to live the way that Jesus lived. Let's face a simple fact, Peter says. Look at all of those things, and I'm paraphrasing what Peter said. You can read it later. He says, look at all of those things in the world, and I'll tell you what, they're going to burn. They're going to burn. He says it a few times. They're going to burn. They will melt with, with incredible heat. Don't give yourself over just to the pleasures of the world. Don't devote yourselves to, to making money for money's sake or building monuments for the praise of the world because, as Peter said, it's going to burn. It's going to burn. Most people try and find meaning in life by building something that's here today but gone tomorrow. We strive to overcome our, our sense of finiteness by producing something that will, will produce a monument. And so in generations to come, people will look at the monument. It's going to burn. It's going to burn. Some build professional reputation through work and skill and get a sense of power from, from the heavy responsibilities and the people who look to them for leadership. It's going to burn. That's what's going to happen to that. They build artistic expressions and become proud of what they created because they hung in the louvre. It's going to burn. Some more simply build hobbies or collections. Coins or bees. Uh, uh, whatever it might be. Even the bees are going to burn. <laughs> So what manner of persons ought we to be? Simple. Like him. It's not complex. Peter didn't stress here that believers, unbelievers are going to be judged. He did that repeatedly earlier. He said here, look, this is not about the destruction of people. This is about living now. And here's what we should do. We should be motivated to be holy and godlike. The implication of the, is this, nothing else is going to survive. Nothing else is going to survive. God's judgment on the earth will be absolute. But expressions of holiness and godliness will remain eternally. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So how do we do it? Well, we just go back and look at what manner of man 
he was. As he walked on the earth, remembering that he chose to live with the limitations of humanity, the same limits that are placed on us, the same God who anointed Jesus of Nazareth anoints us, equips us with the same Holy Spirit to do his will and purpose. So much so that he gave us the same status and made us sons of God on this earth. The God whom we serve is not corrupted by human weakness. The kingdom that we serve does not have a government crisis and change leadership three times a week. No, no. Our government is stable, let me tell you. It's been stable, and I can't even say it's been stable for a long time because it's been stable longer than that. Longer than time. It has been eternally stable and still will be for eternity. We have a security that cannot be shaken. I might have lost sight of who's heading up the government in this nation, but I know who's governing the kingdom of which I am a part and which I choose to serve. And as I consider what manner of man he is, as I consider what manner of love he has poured out on me, I am challenged to live for him and like him and have a life that's committed to an eternal cause. How about you? Do you know him, first of all? If there's anyone here this morning that has not yet been made a son of God, let me tell you, you are missing out on everything. Not just missing out on a little bit. You are missing out on everything that's important. And I want to tell you, if you don't know him, come and have a talk and I'll be happy to introduce you. And if you do know him, and you see and you value what he has made you to be, then be challenged to live in that way. Let me encourage you. Consider the man. Consider the love. And consider what manner of persons ought we to be. And the answer becomes simple and obvious. We're king's kids, sons of God. And we shall reign forever. Let me just finish with one other statement. We know a passage in Scripture, we used to sing it, we used to always... How many people remember when we only had a King James Bible and we used to use that as our songbook as well? Let's sing Revelation 3. (laughs) We used to do that. And, And there's one passage there that we know and is famous not only because we used to sing it, And because in the Bible, but it's also because it's in Handel's Messiah. The kingdoms of this world, they have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Hmm. That's interesting. Jesus, is that the Christ? Here's Here's a shocker for you. Think about this one. The king and his approved, Christos, the anointed. Who's going to reign forever? Jesus is going to reign. So he's the one who's reigning, and with him, he's anointed. Hmm. And we shall reign forever and ever with him. 
whoa, it's worth being a son of God. Father, we thank you that now we are the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know what we are. And so we, we just commit each one to you, we commit the word to you and pray, God, that our hearts will be lifted and challenged to live as you want us to live, holy and godly life that's accepted by you eternally, in Jesus' name. Amen.